Welcome to our continuing 2019 educational webinar series. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have two excellent co-presenters today, Elizabeth Sullivan Esquire and Emily A. Johnson Esquire at McDonald Hopkins LLC. McDonald Hopkins is a business advisory and advocacy law firm with offices in six locations, Chicago, Cleveland, Columbus, Detroit, Miami, and West Palm Beach. Liz is co-chair of the firm's national healthcare practice. She began her legal career in the healthcare practice group at McDonald Hopkins and later served as an attorney in the legal department at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation before returning to McDonald Hopkins as a member. While at the Cleveland Clinic, Liz provided regulatory advice and transactional guidance to various service lines including the clinical laboratory, professional pathology, imaging, transplant, and remote and distance health teams. Over the course of her career, Liz has assisted various types of healthcare providers, including clinical laboratories, hospitals, physician specialty groups, te telehealth providers, transplant centers, surgeries, and surgery centers. Liz has experience providing regulatory, licensing, compliance, reimbursement, contractual, and corporate guideline, guidance to clients. She has advised clients on state professional licensure laws, CLIA standards, state laboratory laws, government and private payer reimbursement policies, and billing rules, federal and state fraud and abuse rules and regulations, state telehealth laws, and HIPAA rules and regulations. She has provided assistance to entities during licensure and accreditation surveys, government investigations, and through payer audits and disputes. In addition to providing regulatory guidance to clients, Liz is also knowledgeable in evaluating how a business opportunity or arrangement implicates a provider's unique and regulatory framework. Liz has counseled clients not only on the regulatory aspects of an arrangement as described above, but she also experienced she also is experienced in reviewing and negotiating negotiating relevant contractual and legal documentation in connection with con contemplated business arrangements. Liz earned a JD and a certificate of advanced studies in health law from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law and an MA in bioethics and a BA cum laude in political science from Case Western Reserve University. Emily focuses her practice on matters primarily for clients in the healthcare industry. She provides regulatory and compliance assistance on both federal and state on the state level. She has assisted clinical laboratories, hospitals, long-term acute care hospitals, community hospitals, physician specialty groups, telehealth providers, surgery centers, and healthcare associations, pharmacies, and other healthcare providers on regulatory licensing compliance, reimbursement and contractual and corporate matters. She has provided support to entities during licensure and accreditation surveys and assisted in navigating state professional licensure laws, CLIA standards, and state federal laboratory laws and regulations, government and private payer reimbursement, state and federal fraud and abuse laws, 
and rules, state telehealth laws, and state and federal pharmacy regulation. She also has advised clients on direct-to-consumer testing issues and applicable state requirements. She also has experience with provider-based compliance issues and the 340B federal drug pricing program, including implementation, program compliance, audit preparation, and preparing for audits conducted by the Office of Pharmacy Affairs. In addition, she has significant, significant experience with HIPAA compliance, including drafting HIPAA policies and procedures, breach response and notification, drafting response to investigations conducted by the Office for Civil Rights, and advising clients on proactive HIPAA compliance and breach prevention. Prior to joining McDonald Hopkins, Emily served as healthcare attorney senior consultant at a national legal-based healthcare management consulting firm and outside counsel to the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy. Emily earned a JD from the John Marshall School, uh, John Marshall Law School in 2010 and received a BA Dean's List from Illinois Wesleyan University in 2005. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a uh, with a button on the bottom right-hand side of your screen. So Liz and Emily, a warm welcome. Thank you. Catherine, thank you so much. Uh, so this is Liz Sullivan speaking, uh, and I'm going to kick it off. Uh, what Emily and I intend to do today is, is walk through ECRA and give everybody kind of an overview of ECRA. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about the exceptions and um, focus particularly on some of the specific areas um, practically that this, this has created challenges for our provider clients. So an example and probably where we'll spend some time in particular is, is the um, impact to sales and marketing arrangements uh, because we've certainly had a lot of clients that um, have had questions about that. So I guess let's start with what is ECRA? So ECRA is the Eliminating Kickbacks in Recovery Act. Um, it was passed as part of the Substance Use Disorder Prevention um, Act. And so, you know, essentially this, the, the larger act that ECRA was part of, um, which is referred to as the Support Act, was intended to address the opioid crisis that's happening right now. Um, the Support Act itself has a number of different facets to it, not specifically applicable only to healthcare providers, but many different things that relate to the opioid epidemic. And then ECRA, uh, which was originally drafted to stand alone as its own law, was added to the Support Act when the Support Act was passed. So ECRA took effect in October of 2018. It was effective October 24th of 2018. Um, and what's really interesting about it is that it was, because it was sort of a standalone, um, there really isn't much in the way of um, legislative discussion or commentary. We don't have a lot of legislative intent. 
um, that we can go on based on how to apply this. Um, I'm going to move on to the next slide. So what is ECRA continued? Um, ECRA originally is drafted before it became part of the Support Act and before it was passed. It focused specifically on recovery homes and clinical treatment facilities. Uh, but when it was passed as part of the Support Act in October, uh, the legislation was redrafted or revised to add laboratories. So ECRA applies specifically to three types of providers, recovery homes, clinical treatment facilities, and labs. Uh, what's really interesting about ECRA is that it applies to all payers, not just federal payers. So this is a little bit different and certainly what has been caught, it's causing a lot of consternation in the industry. Um, the fact that it's no longer simply government payers that providers need to worry about when they're thinking about how they're going to structure services agreements and compensation arrangements. But ECRA really brings everything under the tent. It's any payers. Um, and sometimes the way that I think about it or describe it is it's essentially the anti-kickback. This is a bit of an oversimplification, but it's the anti-kickback statute on steroids. So for those on the phone, I, I'm sure everybody is familiar with the anti-kickback statute. The anti-kickback statute prohibits uh, any individual from offering or paying or soliciting or receiving something of value in exchange for referrals of government work. And so ECRA um, really is, uh, it, it's just kind of expanded the concepts or sort of the, the guardrails of the anti-kickback statute to any payers, um, but only for certain types of providers, which is an interesting twist. So it's not completely, it's not a full blanket expansion of the anti-kickback statute. Um, it is, you can distinguish it, but for providers that are in this space, recovery homes, clinical treatment facilities, and labs, um, it's essentially an expansion of the anti-kickback statute. So this is Emily, um, not to interrupt. So what's interesting about ECRA, um, and going back to what Liz said about it being passed as an intent to curb the opioid epidemic. So historically, certain providers operating in the toxicology and substance abuse space were able to avoid some of the prohibitions under the anti-kickback statute because they did not submit claims to federal payers. So now, you know, they don't have that same protection under ECRA because ECRA is directly applicable to the private payer work, meaning some of those same prohibitions that were historically avoided under anti-kickback are now relevant concepts under ECRA. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think Emily is right. When you think about the patient um, base or the patient population that substance abuse facilities are um, supporting or, or treating, there is a lot of self-pay, there's a lot of private work, and so there were some of these arrangements that, you know, probably from an ethical standpoint were questionable, uh, but they weren't being reimbursed by federal programs, and therefore it was something that was acceptable until ECRA took effect. Um, so I guess maybe we should talk a little bit about what ECRA specifically prohibits, because we've sort of foreshadowed that with, with the anti-kickback statute discussion. <laughs> So this is Emily. So ECRA is an intent-based statute. It prohibits the knowing and willful solicitation or receipt of um, basically anything of value directly or indirectly for um, referring a patient to a recovery home clinical treatment facility 
or lab, or paying or offering anything of value directly or indirectly for the same, um, with the intent to induce a referral of a patient um, to a recovery home, clinical treatment facility, or lab, or in exchange for an individual using the services of one of those facilities. So it's a similar to that lead in language to the anti-kickback statute, and that it's an intent-based um, regulation. Um, it has similar prohibitions, but as Liz pointed out, it um, only applies to certain providers. Um, and what's different is under the anti-kickback statute, this concept of a referral is basically a, a referral from anyone for services reimbursable under Medicare or Medicaid. Here we're talking about, under ECRA, we're talking about referrals to a clinical treatment facility, a lab, or a recovery home. Um, so, and, and going back to this concept of it being an intent-based statute, and the same concept applies to the anti-kickback statute, but, you know, there's this, the, the arrangement itself, if it, if one purpose of the arrangement is to violate the terms of the anti-kickback statute, or, the, or to violate the terms of ECRA, I apologize, um, then you know, the intent factor is satisfied. And there's case law under the anti-kickback statute that came, that sort of created this one purpose test, um, which says exactly that. Yeah, and I think it, I mean, just to kind of um, maybe put a finer point on it, to the extent that um, anybody in the audience is joining this because you've been reading about ECRA or you read about ECRA when it was originally passed, I, mean, I think part of the reason for this was really um, what was happening in the community and the way that some um, less than, I guess, less than stellar facilities were targeting patients and really taking advantage of them. So the intent here was to stop what, what was essentially patient brokering um, or inducing patients to come in because someone had screened them for purposes of what kind of um, insurance coverage they had or what could be essentially made off them uh, if they were staying in a facility. Um, and so there really is, um, there's a pretty clear focus, and we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about, you know, what do we expect to see from an enforcement perspective. I think the government had a pretty clear idea of what they were concerned about when this was drafted. Um, but, but because they sort of leaned on the anti-kickback statute and, and created some twists, it, it does also, um, it has created other types of practical challenges, certainly for our client base of providers and, and probably for those folks out there. Yes. No, I think that's, that's very important. Um, so when we're talking about ACRA, of course, there are penalties that are at issue if we are not complying with the, the terms of the statute or the regulation. And mm -hmm. ACRA has both civil and criminal penalties. Um, so if you violate ECRA, you can be fined not more than $200,000 per offense and imprisoned for not more than 10 years. Um, so th those are the regulatory implications. But setting that aside, you also have liability under payer contracts, right? Because most payer contracts include this language um, that essentially states that you're going to comply with all applicable laws, rules, and regulations. So even if we're not talking about Medicare and Medicaid rules and regulations, if a payer contract, your blues, your Cygnas, Aetna, 
and so forth, if they have language, and almost all of them do, stating that you you agree to comply and abide by all laws, rules, and regulations, that would include ECRA. So if you violate ECRA, you, on its terms, um, may be in breach of your payer contract and could lose your payer contract as well. Um, so it's something to consider. Um, and if we lose our payer contract, then our source of our uh, funding is, um, is no longer there and we can't bill for services. Um, so moving on um, to what, what is a laboratory um, under the definition of uh, ECRA. So, um, you know, Liz brought up this, the important point that the concept of a laboratory was added in at the midnight hour and was not necessarily intended to be passed as part of the Support Act, but unfortunately the way it was drafted on its face, we have, um, we have the, the, the word laboratory included and what does that mean? So laboratory is defined to include all laboratories, not just clinical laboratories in the um, toxicology and um, substance abuse space, but it is defined as the word laboratory is defined under the CLIAREX, which is essentially all labs, so anatomic and, and clinical. It's, it's defined as a facility for the biological, microbiological, serological, chemical, immunohematological, hematological, biophysical, cytological, pathological, or other examination of materials derived from the human body for the purpose of providing information for the diagnosis, prevention, or treatment of any disease or impairment or the assessment of the health of human beings. So that's very, very broad when we're talking about a regulation that was passed to curb the opioid epidemic. So, you know, we represent a variety of clients, um, some that are only in the anatomic pathology space, um, and then those that are directly in the space that um, ECRA seeks to regulate, which is the toxicology and substance abuse space. And our anatomic pathology clients often ask us, okay, so we've got ECRA, we've got this law on the books that technically applies to us, what do we do? Um, because we, we fall within that definition of a laboratory. And we'll get into this a little bit as our presentation goes on, but unfortunately, with, with how broad ECRA is drafted, that they're exactly right. They, they are subject to ECRA. So certain protections that they had um, under anti-kickback aren't necessarily available, and like I said, we'll get into this in a minute, but aren't necessarily available under ECRA, which, as you can imagine, as I'm sure some of you on the phone um, feel, this has turned the lab industry sort of upside down and sent it into a tizzy. So this is just, this slide is just a reiteration really of what I just said, but I think it, the, the takeaway here is to know that even if you fall outside of the substance abuse and toxicology space, you're still subject to ECRA. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> this is Liz again, you know, Emily's really kind of alluded to this, but just a, as a practical discussion, um, as she mentioned, we, we have a lot of clinical laboratory and anatomic pathology clients. And so obviously for some types of providers, right, the clinical treatment facility um, and, and sort of those in the rehab space and, and even for our toxicology clients, it's pretty clear cut that the intent of ACRA was going to include, uh, was going to include them. 
Um, but as Emily mentioned, you know, we have a lot of clients that are reaching out to us that are in, in the lab space, but aren't necessarily doing toxicology work and asking what exactly does this mean for us. Um, and, and what we know somewhat unofficially, uh, but from, for those groups that are advocating with the government, I mean, it, it's, it's apparently been stated probably unofficially and not in formal channels at this point that um, this was unintended to sweep across any any provider that meets the definition of a laboratory. That that wasn't the original intent. Um, so I think from a prior priority, excuse me, a priority of enforcement standpoint, it's probably those that are actually in the space that are more likely to see enforcement action. Um, but the commentary that's been, the informal channels and commentary has been pretty clear that the government says, well, if it's on the books and technically you meet the definition of being regulated, then, you know, you need to comply with the law. So that's been something that we've had to discuss with a lot of our clients is just, you know, what exactly does this mean for you as a practical matter if you do fall under the definition of laboratory, but you're not necessarily in this substance abuse space um, or even doing toxicology testing, but at the same time, understanding that there's some risk of enforcement, even though it's probably not enforced, it wouldn't be prioritized. It's most likely not going to be prioritized by the government. Um, so I think one of the reasons we spent so much time on laboratory is because that is part of the question and somewhat, somewhat ambiguous. I mean, maybe not ambiguous in the language, but in the intent. Right. Whereas um, the clinical treatment facilities, that that's pretty clear that those providers are subject to this rule moving yeah. forward. And this is Emily. So it's touch on what Liz is saying. So it's sort of become, and it's the lawyer response, right, that everybody hates to receive. <laughs> but it's the unfortunate truth when we're talking about ECRA is if you fall outside of the substance abuse and toxicology space, um, you're, you're governed, you're subject to ECRA, meaning you should comply with the true letter of the law. But some of our clients have taken a risk tolerance approach, meaning, you know, and, and we'll talk about this as we talk about the sales and marketing compensation in a second here. Um, but if they are structuring their arrangement with sales and marketing reps in a manner that was otherwise compliant with the anti-kickback statute, and because they're not in the toxicology space, some of our clients, and we're not, you know, blessing this arrangement by any means, but some of our clients have taken the approach that they feel comfortable with that arrangement and with the historical precedent um, that protected those types of arrangements because they are not in that toxicology and substance abuse space. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting too, to Emily's point, um, yeah, we do have folks that are still taking a wait and see approach. And certainly at the beginning of the year, at the beginning of 2019, a wait and see approach seemed very reasonable you know, January, February, and then through the spring, also true. And now, you know, we're, we're, um, we're getting further, further from the effective date at this point. Um, and so the question is, does the wait and see approach, you know, how is that going to factor in from a government perspective? And I think Emily's right for those that are clearly, um, clearly subject to this, um, wait and see really is an, an argument that's reasonable, uh, but there are clarifying regulations uh, we understand that the government is working on, and while we don't know what's going to be in those, for folks who maybe weren't clearly um, intended to be a part of this, you know, there there is a, at least an argument 
to kind of take that wait and see approach, see what the clarifying regulations are going to say and whether they're going to pull in any exceptions uh, from the anti-kickback statute or elsewhere or, you know, clarify who is subject to this from a provider standpoint. There's a little bit, there's a little bit more of an argument there um, that, that folks are kind of, kind of waiting to see. And we're hopeful that those regulations will come out soon, but we, 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 we've been waiting on them. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we've talked about the what ECRA is and what the definition of a laboratory is and what the penalties for punishment under ECRA are. We've gotten into a little bit of side discussion about some of the exceptions, but um, mm -hmm. let's get into some of the meat of what these exceptions really state um, and which ones I think are causing the most consternation in the industry. Okay, yeah, I think that's that's right. So. Um, Again, you know, maybe I'm belaboring a point here, but knowing that everybody who's joining this are, are folks that are in, probably in compliance and healthcare, you're familiar with the anti-kickback uh, framework and certainly the Stark framework, which says you cannot do this prohibited act unless an exception applies. So ECRA is similar. Um, you cannot engage in the prohibited act, but there are exceptions that are available. So just to kind of run through those, um, you know, a discount obtained by a provider of services or other entity, um, if the reduction is properly disclosed and reflected in cost claimed by the provider, that is an exception to this rule. So there could be an arrangement, and as long as the um, discount is properly disclosed, that would be acceptable. Um, another, and the next exception on this slide, uh, which we will talk about a little bit more in depth because this is one that's generated a lot of discussion. Um, there is an exception to the prohibition if the payment is by an employer to a W-2 or a 1099 uh, for services, as long as the payment is not determined by or and does not vary by the number of individuals referred to a particular recovery home, clinical treatment facility or lab, the number of tests or procedures that are performed, um, or the amount billed to or received from a payer. So if you think about this exception, basically what it's saying is it's perfectly fine for you to engage an individual um, to do promotional services. And when I say promotional, I'm, I'm really thinking about traditional sales and marketing services, that's acceptable, but if you pay them on a, a variable basis, so essentially a commission, that would not satisfy the ECRA exception. Um, and that, again, we'll talk about that a little bit more in detail because that's certainly one of the big ones that has, um, that's out there. Um, moving on to the next slide, there's an exception to ECRA for discounts, um, discounts on the price of drugs if they are furnished to an applicable beneficiary under the Medicare coverage gap discount program. And also um, payments made by a principal to an agent for services that are rendered under a personal services and management contract that meets the anti-kickback uh, the anti-kickback statute requirements. So what's interesting about this one um, and, and just contrasting it with the other, the, the clear uh, or the the specific exception um, that that we talked about on the last slide from ECRA, um, the anti-kickback uh, safe harbors or exceptions around personal services and management contract safe harbor um, that does not permit compensation to to vary. 
And so if you think about that, I mean, there seems to be a theme running through here, both with the express ECRA exception and then the reference to the anti-kickback statute safe harbor, that they really don't want compensation to be variable yeah. uh, because of the abuses that can come out of that. So I think it's interesting that there are two and they're both, you know, aimed at the same same thing. Right. So to touch on this one a little bit further and what I've seen in my practice um, of people trying to circumvent ECRA, I have seen sales and marketing agreements, which are very clearly um, contracts for the provision of marketing services, um, redrafted in a manner that calls them management services contracts. Um, and it's the, the lipstick on the pig scenario. Um, it's really it's dressing up what is otherwise prohibited conduct and the, the intent there, and I've seen it from fairly sophisticated lawyers who are trying to get to this type of uh, protection under the, the and a kickback safe harbor, um, is uh, it's shocking to me, and, and I typically say it from those who aren't as well versed in the healthcare space um, and are trying to create a creative argument, um, but you know, if no matter what you call an agreement, whether you call it a sales and marketing agreement or a management services contract, if the service is something that is payment for a referral that varies in any manner based on volume or value of um, services or um, number of tests received or reimbursement received, then no matter what you call it, it's going to be subject to ECRA. So I guess the moral of the story there is we can't relabel agreements um, just to meet that in a kickback safe harbor. And like I said, I've seen this. So be careful as you're um, evaluating your contracts. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. Um, just to kind of move into the other exceptions, there's eight that we're going to go over. Um, this is number five. Uh, waivers or discounts of coinsurance or copayment by a payer is an exception. So long as that waiver or discount isn't routinely provided, and it's provided in good faith. So I think about this as potentially being um, financial assistance or some sort of something that is reasonable, but is not a pattern or practice of waiving those coinsurance uh, payments or, or, or co essentially deductibles or co-payments. Right. And the idea there is if you think about patient inducement or patient steering, um, if you take away any sort of responsibility, that can certainly influence decision making. Um, so that's certainly part of it. There's also an exception for remuneration that relates to federally qualified uh, health centers. Um, and, uh, you know, so this again, this is actually another situation where ECRA has specifically looked at the anti-kickback statute uh, framework and pulled that federally qualified health center safe harbor out of the anti-kickback statute. And then finally, uh, remuneration that is pursuant to an alternative payment model, um, if it's used by a state, a health insurance issuer, group health plan, uh, if HHS has determined that the arrangement is necessary for care coordination or value-based care. So basically, if there is remuneration or value flowing from this type of arrangement, if that's an arrangement that has essentially been blessed or is appropriate, then what ECRA says is that's okay. We understand that you know there's a value-based care goal here and that would be acceptable that there's some value coming out of that arrangement. 
And then finally, it's our catch-all. So any other payment, uh, remuneration, discount, or reduction that's determined by the AG in consultation with HHS. So one of the fascinating things, and, and frankly, this is just sort of a footnote or a point to be made, um, you know, we spend so much of our time in the healthcare world and in the, in the codes and the titles that relate to healthcare laws. Um, ECRA is actually, it, it's a criminal, um, it's in the criminal title or the criminal code. Um, and the uh, attorney general is involved in this, not just HHS. So I, I just think it's a fascinating, you know, the Department of Justice, it's, it's got a different angle to it than what we would be used to, right? Um, when you're looking at Stark and anti-kickback and such. So hopefully when those regulations come out that we talked about earlier, um, clarifying regulations, we'll have, some, we'll have some more clarity about whether or not there are some other exceptions that were created through the rulemaking process. Okay, so um, similar to some other regulations, there's this concept of preemption, right? So when is ECRA preempted by other existing regulations? Meaning when does ECRA not apply? And um, the statute or the regulation, I should say, uh, specifically states that ECRA does not apply to conduct that is already prohibited by the anti-kickback statute. So if it's not allowed by the anti-kickback statute, ECRA does not apply. Um, but if conduct is allowed by the anti-kickback statute, ECRA still may apply and the conduct may be prohibited. So it's sort of a nuanced concept. Um, there's also a school of thought, and I don't know, you know how um, significant this argument is or how much weight it has to it, but there's a school of thought that thinks that the word prohibited was actually a uh, drafting error and was intended to say permitted. Um, so it would not apply to conduct that is permitted under the anti-kickback statute, which would in effect enable those anti-kickback safe harbors and exceptions to be pulled through under ACRA. But unfortunately, it wasn't drafted that way. And um, so now we're sort of stuck trying to interpret what, what was meant by that. Um, and as Liz said, there's there's really no legislative intent to look to on this, so we have no guidance yet. Um, yeah, and I, I just to jump in really quickly, this is Liz again. I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, Emily's right. Certainly, as as um, when ECRA took effect and was rolled out, there was all of this discussion about could there have been drafting errors? What does this mean? And I think some of that has died down simply because you know we're in a place where everybody's waiting for the clarifying regulation. So. I know I've said this a few times, but I'm really, you know, I certainly personally, and I think generally most healthcare attorneys are hopeful that the clarifying regulations will give us some insight into <laughs> at least what the agency's view is of the right. legislative intent. intent. Right. So. And best case scenario, pull for those <laughs> in a kickback safe harvest. Yes. Um, so ECRA also does not apply to conduct that is prohibited by state laws on the same subject matter. So these would be like state and a kickback equivalents or state laws. Um, that also address this type of conduct that's prohibited under ECRA. So, like Liz said, it's unclear um, how to reconcile the conduct that meets an anti-kickback safe harbor but does not meet an ECRA exception. So, um, we're going to dive into this on our next slide. Um, but you know, there's in the concept of the individual compensation. Um, that we went through where you could pay a W-2 or a 1099 as long as the 
the compensation did not vary by volume or value or number of tests performed or um, the amount received or paid in connection with the services provided. Um, well, under the anti-kickback statute, there is both a safe harbor and an exception that specifically permits um, percentage-based compensation to be paid to W-2 employees. Um, and as many of you on the phone know this, you know, a lot of sales and marketing reps are structured in exactly that manner. So a W-2 employee could be paid a percentage basis. Um, here under ECRA, right, it, the, the language of ECRA specifically states that if you pay a W-2 in that manner, you don't have that same protection that you would under the anti-kickback statute. Um, and that's a very important <laughs> distinction from anti-kickback. Um, there is long-standing historical guidance from the Office of Inspector General that um, expressly permits percentage-based compensation to employees, um, W-2 employees, but it's important to note that the OIG has always taken issue with percentage-based compensation paid to 1099. So setting ECRA aside, um, even before ECRA was passed, um, if you paid a W or if you paid a 1099 on a percentage basis, the arrangement was still at risk, even though we know lots of industry um, folks structured their arrangements in this manner, there was still significant risk. And we're seeing this in our practice now that um, the government is starting to push back on that type of an arrangement um, when you're paid a percentage basis. And I think ECRA kind of highlights that. Um, but, you know, what do we do now, right? We have this law in the book, but we have this OIG guidance that allowed this conduct to, or these arrangements under the anti-kickback statute. So we're in this weird um, situation where we don't know how to apply that um, until we get this guidance from from the government, presuming presuming it comes out sometime soon. <laughs> right. So um, yeah. So taking a a little deeper dive um, into that individual compensation um, exception, um, we know there are many stakeholders who have taken issue with the language of the, um, the compensation exception um, as it's currently drafted and have submitted memos to the OIG and have met with regulators and senators who lobbied for um, ECRA's passage. And they're trying to get some clarity surrounding how it's going to be enforced um, and whether or not there's going to be any sort of carve out for conduct that was otherwise permitted under the anti-kickback state or anti-kickback statute um, and you know we haven't gotten that to date um, but really I mean I think the intent there is is to get some sort of guidance that says well if you structure an arrangement in a manner that was otherwise compliant with the anti-kickback statute then you won't be prosecuted under ECRA um, and we just we haven't seen anything from the government blessing these types of arrangements but I know um, that, that that's the hope that this guidance that we're looking for, this um, legislative amendment would um, show. Um, so, um, yeah, so, you know, like I said, there's no, um, there's no legislative intent to look to here. So we're kind of stuck scrambling um, with what to do 
And there have been numerous articles on it. There was a great article by the Dark Report about, you know, how do I structure my arrangement now? And, um, you know, I'm not directly in the space that's being regulated. What do I do? So we get this question, and we're still getting this question on a daily basis. Um, and the, the, the unfortunate truth is there's, there's no great answer right now until we get that clarity. So it's, it's to Liz's point, so much time has passed since ECRA was passed that you can't sort of sit idly by and wait now. Um, you need to evaluate what, what works for your organization. And obviously our, our recommendation is always a flat um, fee approach when you're talking about compensation um, to sales and marketing reps. But you know, practically we know that that business model is something that is, hard, is a hard sell for sales and marketing reps who really, they make their livelihood off of a commission structure. Um, so getting them comfortable with it, finding an alternative um, compensation method that works for the sales and marketing force that en enables them to still achieve the same livelihoods that they were achieving under the old percentage basis. Um, it's a hard, it's a hard um, compensation structure or method to come up with. Um, so, yeah, I think it's challenging all the way around. This is Liz again. I mean, because as Emily said, it's difficult because um, certainly in the industry, sales sales reps have an expectation of what they're going to make and how they're going to be compensated. So one of the challenges that we're seeing, you know, just to kind of get into the practical discussion, which I, I think is going to be very helpful, you know, um, to kind of illustrate some of these questions that folks may have, but um, you know, from a practical standpoint, some of the questions we've fielded around this are, well, we're afraid to be the first to change our compensation model because we're afraid we will lose all of our sales reps because sales reps generally, you know, moving from industry to industry, whether it's healthcare or otherwise, they have an expectation that they are going to be compensated on a commission basis. And the flip side is, is that if you look at, um, okay, you want to attract the best talent, then you're going to have to pay um, a pretty rich salary to a salesperson um, based on what you think that they are going to be able to do or not even what they're going to be able to do, right? Because that goes back to the idea of the volume or value of referrals. But if you want to be competitive and get a salesperson who's not on a commission basis to um, work for you, what does that base compensation package have to look like? And so either the risk is on the sales individual uh, because they're not earning a commission, or the risk is on the provider um, because they have to pay a base salary regardless of kind of what that sales individual does. But again, if you kind of take the high-level look at this and say, what is the government concerned about and what was this legis legislation intended to address, um, it really was intended to address um, inappropriate behavior and influencing of patients. And so, yeah, the idea is, okay, you have to think about what is sales and marketing? What are those services? What do they mean? Um, what are your expectations for a typical salesperson to be out in the field? What are they doing? What kind of customer service um, services are they engaging in? What kind of time commitment is that? What are their other value adds from the perspective of serving the um, client base and that sort of thing? And so what we, what the provider community and what our clients are, are challenged with and what we have been discussing in the, in the last, in the months since ECRA, our 
okay, what are those duties? Like we have to really break those duties down and assign value to those types of duties and assign, you know, the scope, the scope of their um, responsibilities has to be more clearly set out. It can't just sort of be like whatever salespeople do. Um, it really needs to be thought through and, and expressly laid out. And I think with that in mind, that's kind of a great segue. I think what might be nice for us to do now is um, go through some questions, some practical questions so that we can kind of illustrate how we see ECRA applying um, to everyday practices. And then also just kind of um, discuss this at a more practical level than a high level. Uh, so I'll stop there and, and, and maybe we can, we can get into some questions or I know Emily and I, as we've kind of already expressed, we've, we're getting tons of questions from clients. So we can even run through some of those questions we're getting, or more of the questions that we're getting from our client base. So Catherine, I don't know if we want to jump to client uh, questions that we have from the audience, or if you want Liz and I to discuss practical um, um, situations. I think maybe we'll start there actually with the practical situations that we are seeing or questions we're getting from our clients, um, if you don't mind. Um, okay, that sounds good. Oh, if you want to go with some of your uh, with some of your uh, observations that you had, and then we'll go with some of the questions that we had. Sure, sounds great. Okay. Um, so, like I said initially, you know, you can't relabel an agreement to fit these exceptions. I think that's that's the most obvious one that I'm seeing. Um, the issue that Liz started to touch on is, you know, how do we incentivize our sales and marketing reps to perform if we pay them a flat fee. Mm -hmm. And along with that question, something we always get is, well, can I pay them some sort of deferred bonus or deferred compensation? Or can I kick the ball far enough down the road in that deferred bonus or compensation so that maybe we have some clarity from the government on this topic? And you know, our, our response to that to date has been, it's still not without risk. It might be marginally better because you're not paying that percentage basis on a monthly basis, um, or percentage compensation, I should say, um, on a monthly basis, but you're still doing the same thing. But the compensation that you're offering is still structured in a manner that takes into consideration volume or value. So anytime you have a percentage-based compensation, it's a percentage of what? It's a percentage of the business that you've generated for the provider on whose behalf uh, um, you're working. Um, and so when when compensation is paid in that manner, as on its face, whether you pay that bonus now or 365 days from now, it violates the terms of, um, of ECRA. Yeah, and just to kind of build on that, I mean, I think we've kind of alluded to it, but, um, you know, it is difficult, this concept of a deferred bonus. I mean, there, there's certainly, we certainly have clients who have, who have, I mean, I guess if we're talking about practical implications and can we give some examples to assist with the group, um, you know, we've had clients who have basically sat down with their sales team and described ECRA and made them aware of it and explained really what the limitations are with respect to ECRA and, um, you know, have basically said to their team, listen, we have to change our compensation structure as a result of this. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to do our best to keep everything fair based on the type of arrangement that we struck pre-ECRA. And so, you know, 
either being transparent about um, with not withholding a bonus, but essentially changing, having to change the compensation structure, you know, mid-contract or mid-term or whatever it is, um, educating the sales team on ECRA, and then trying to come to some type of um, calculation that is fair. Um, so there's there is the wait and see approach. There's sort of like whole like continue doing what you're doing, wait and see. And we do have clients that are engaging in that. Um, we have clients who are doing what Emily described, which is, uh, you know, we're going to hold on to any payments over and above salary and wait to see kind of what what clarification we get and what is going to be acceptable and trying to be transparent with the sales team. And then we do have some clients who have who have decided or have like tried to endeavor to move towards um, a, a specifically ECRA compliant structure. And there's two ways to do that, as Emily said. One is just a it's just a flat compensation, you know, a salary, um, a complete flat base salary. And if there are any sort of bonuses, those bonuses have no they have absolutely no relation to what that individual is doing in the field, but may um, you know relate to the health of the business if that can be supported and it's not related to business generation or uh, you know something along those lines. And and sort of like the in between is coming up with a structure that will compensate folks for work that they're doing, but is not necessarily related to um, the actual generated like the the work or the volume generated. So an example of that would be, you know, we have clients that say, well, if I sign someone up for this, if I give, if I give, um, you know, employee A the exact same package as employee B, but employee A is giving me, you know, sort of 70% of their attention or, you know, they're really not super focused and they're not, you know, giving us their all where employee B is giving us 125%. How is that fair? What does that do to my morale of my employees? And I think that's a valid, I mean, that's a valid concern. Um, and so what we've talked about is, okay, well, if you've got somebody who's a hustler and they're, you know, they're really out there in the field, they're putting in more hours and you can quantify and justify them, or they are visiting more accounts or they serve um, more accounts. So it's not the numbers coming out of the accounts, but it's the fact that you know, they've got more calls to make, physical calls or um, you know, actual telephone calls in a week um, or a given month or period, you know, is there a way to compensate that individual for doing more sales calls that are true actual sales calls or servicing a client who has more needs? Um, if that can be demonstrated, I think that's a reasonable solution or reasonable um, like structure. Now, we haven't gotten anything from the government that says what's going to be okay and what's not, but if, if that's a, a story, if that can be communicated, what the value is of that individual's work, and it's not, you know, based on the volume or value of the work that's being generated, I, I think that's a compelling argument. So we've counseled clients on that, um, and, and we do. We literally have clients that are across the board. We've got folks who are taking wait and see, haven't changed their comp. We've got folks who are um, waiting to see and aren't paying bonuses at the moment or commissions. And then we've got folks who want to go all the way to a flat fee or, um, you know, folks that have tried to come up with some sort of compensation structure 
that they feel is reasonable under ECRA. So we really are seeing all of those, but I think it's helpful just to talk through them for folks who are, you know, now aware of ECRA and thinking like, okay, what are we going to do as a practical matter? Yeah, and I think, you know, we've alluded to this a couple times, but I think there's a sliding scale risk tolerance approach too when evaluating those methods too, because, um, you know, the the wait and see, hey, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing historically because we structured it in compliance with the any kickback statute um, approach maybe something that our anatomic pathology clients are more comfortable with right mm -hmm. now because they're not directly in the space that ECRA se seeks to regulate. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that they might have a little bit more tolerance to take that risk because to them the risk might be lower. Whereas our where we're seeing more of our clients move towards a flat um, fee approach with sales and marketing reps is those labs that we have that mm -hmm. do clinical laboratory testing or um, anybody that's working with substance abuse providers. Yeah, and really in the, I mean, even clinical lab, um, there there's arguably a spectrum, uh, it's sort of a, a sliding scale even within that. If you've got folks who are not touching toxicology testing, or you've got actual toxicology laboratories, which do nothing else that, that they are doing, excuse me, they're doing that testing, that's their whole business. I mean, it's pretty clear, um, or I, I would argue that it was fairly clear that the government, that's what the government was looking at. So I think they're, you know, whether or not they are going to be um, more strictly scrutinized, I would I would anticipate that they are. Yeah. I mean, there, there aren't any guarantees here, but if we're trying to, you know, do educated guesses based on what we know, you know, folks who are in the space, they're, they're more likely to be scrutinized. Right. And so when we're talking about scrutiny and how an issue with ECRA would come up, um, typically, where we see, you know, the government being put on notice of an ECRA violation is a couple ways. Either an ongoing investigation is already happening where the government's already in your space looking at your compliance and they discover it that way. Or the more um, likely approach or the more likely instance would be through a whistleblower. So through a key TAM process where somebody in your workforce blows the whistle and says, hey, I think we, the company that I work for uh, or used to work for is um, violating the law. And here is evidence of that. Um, so I think that's most likely where it's going to come up. And we've talked to some, some stakeholders who have said, okay, in the context of a key TAM litigation, since I fall outside of the scope of what I think ECRA seeks to regulate, meaning I'm performing more anatomic pathology um, testing as opposed to clinical laboratory testing, um, yeah, I'm paying my 1099 on a percentage basis. So if somebody blows the whistle, or I mean, I'm paying my W-2 on a percentage basis. So if somebody blows the whistle on me, even though I may be violating ECRA, um, my defense when the AG comes knocking is, look at how I've structured my arrangement. I've met the, the, the terms of the anti-kickback statute. I've structured everything in accordance with the OIG advisory opinions. I've done what I can to comply with the existing law. So I'm comfortable in my my, um, my defense there. And I, I don't disagree that I think that that's a, that's a good defense. Um, but again, there has just hasn't been any enforcement action. Right. Um, Another area where we're seeing this come up is in the course of a transaction. Mm -hmm. So when you're dealing with a transaction, buying or selling a laboratory or buying or selling a substance abuse treatment facility, um, 
there is this concept of due diligence where essentially, you know, your entire compliance is evaluated by the um, the buyer of the business and questions arise regarding compliance with laws. And one of those laws now, unfortunately, for, for better or worse, is ECRA. So um, even if you're outside of the space of ECRA, let's say you're selling an anatomic pathology lab and one of your reps and warranties says I'm complying with all applicable laws, rules, and regulations. Well, if you're paying a 1099 or W-2 on a percentage base, are you complying with all rules and regulations? Can you make that rep? Can you accurately make that rep? Um, and are you prepared to defend it? So um, it's something to consider in the event that you're thinking about buying or selling. Yeah, I think, Emily, that's a really good point. I mean, the other piece of this, of course, there's like enforcement in the sense of, um, oh my goodness, we do not want anybody showing up on our door um, and, and sort of uh, looking under the hood or leveling allegations at us that we are in violation of the law. But there's also an additional expense to compliance and it's simply, you know, resources and time and evaluation. And so, you know, um, I'm thinking about, you know, you mentioned the whistleblower aspect of this. Yes, uh, part of the concern would be, I think from my perspective, if I'm, I'm thinking about the practical applications, um, you know, you've got a client who is sort of just ignoring it and they get into a situation where, um, you know, they've got a whistleblower that decides to take it to the government. Well, it may very well be that it's not validated, but the, there is an expense. I mean, there is a huge expense to a provider having to respond to an investigation. It's time, it's resources of your individual or, you know, your, your, your staff and your personnel. Um, there's usually a legal expense. You need to get an, it, it, it's advisable to get an attorney involved to assist in that response. So there's just a lot of expense there, even if at the end of the day, it's not an enforcement action or a penalty um, applied by the government, even defending it or responding is expensive. Um, and then also, I, I think the same is true when you're going through a transaction with a diligence, from the diligence perspective, um, it can impact, you know, if it's, if it's something that's evaluated in the diligence period, it might impact what's being offered as far as um, sale price or uh, just, you know, the expense of sort of counsel for both sides having to evaluate it, go through it, and, and sort of settle. But it certainly violations, um, not even violations, I shouldn't say violations, but um, can, something that's concerning or an alleged violation can cost. Uh, can cost money. So there, there's a lot of hidden expense here. And, and certainly for anybody who's dialed into this, they're probably already sensitive to that because they're here spending some of their time um, trying to get educated on it. Yep. So. All right. Well, I think that is that's it for our presentation. I think at this point, it's appropriate to open it up to any questions that we may have received. So Catherine, um, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Okay, thank you. Well, that was a really wonderful presentation. I really appreciate that on um, on something very new um, for us. So, um, does the law? So we we do have a um, a number of questions here. So, um, does here's the first question: um, Does the law apply to private payment for lab services? So uh, this is Emily, I'll take that one. Yes, it does. Um, so that's that's kind of why ECRA has created the buzz that it has created. So, or part of the reason I should say why ECRA has created this buzz is because it makes that conduct that was previously um, 
prohibited under the or under Medicare and Medicaid now also prohibited when we're billing med, um, private payers as well. So it, it's all payers. I suppose if you're only having a cash-based business, you're still I guess you exempt. That argument, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, I guess you have to be completely cash-based. Completely, yeah, yeah, to even make that argument, right? Um, so yeah, I, nope. I can't see that happening, right? So <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, okay, so here's another question here. Um, what is your opinion on the inclusion of laboratories and how they compensate their W-2 and 1099 reps? Um, and also, and what's your opinion on the legislators correcting this unintended consequence? Sure. So this is Liz. I guess, you know, what I would say is we, we alluded to this a little bit, and I think it's a good question because this is the one that we're getting, or certainly we're we're, we've gotten a ton from our clients. I feel like we talk about it on a regular basis. I mean, you know, it, it's our understanding. Um, the more that we talk to um, stakeholders and entities that are advocating that that laboratories is a general um, blanket definition of providers was probably not the intention, um, but it's certainly where we are now. And, and uh, indications are that Laboratories is not going to be narrowed. So, you know, there was, again, some buzz right at the beginning that perhaps laboratories would be narrowed to only be labs that are serving um, the substance abuse space. And I think it's looking now that that is not likely. I mean, again, we don't know until the clarifying regulations come out, but I would be surprised to see something in there that would sort of change the definition because then you've got the tension between agency rulemaking and and the legislators and what they intended. So I think at this point, labs need to be sensitive to um, to ECRA, regardless of the population they're serving. And I think our hope is, is that some of the exceptions that come out are going to be helpful to labs that might not have been um, intentionally intended to be a part of this. Okay, uh, okay, here's another question. Um, what about compensation? Um, should labs change their Salesforce compensation methods ASAP? Um, so this is Emily. Um, we talked about this a little bit. Um, and, you know, if we were doing this webinar four months ago, five months ago, I would have said you can get more comfortable with the wait and see approach. Um, but like Liz and I, that stated earlier, I, I don't think that that's practical anymore because we're coming up on close to one year of ECRA being um, in place and effective, um, which means we're subject to enforcement action. So even though there hasn't been any enforcement action to date, I think it's critical to start having these discussions with your management level folks to figure out your risk tolerance and um, figure out what works best for your business. Our advice is always um, do a flat fee approach. Um, like I said, we, we know that that doesn't always work for folks, um, but I think now is the time to really start reevaluating our compensation if we're paying 1099s on a percentage basis. If we're paying yeah. W-2s on a percentage basis, currently you still have an argument that this is permitted under the anti-kickback statute um, but you have to be prepared to defend that. And what I mean by that is if the government comes knocking, the government can still say this is expressly prohibited under ECRA. 
So even though you structured your arrangement in a manner that's compliant with the anti-kickback statute, you're still violating ECRA, which means you're still subject to criminal liability. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it, it's that risk tolerance approach. Do we want to do that? Are we prepared to defend that? Um, and there's just no good answer to that right now, um, which is why we keep going back to this concept of pending guidance or legislation. Um, until we have that clarity, we just don't have a great answer to um, whether or not you can pay a, a W-2 on a percentage basis. Yeah, and I, this is, Liz, again, I think Emily's right. Um, it really is a tough area. I mean, certainly if somebody just asks me, without any practical consideration, should you should you switch your comp away from commission? My argument would be yes. Um, and I think Emily's right. The takeaway is if you've got a 1099 sales team and they're commission-based, we don't see a lot of flexibility or leniency with respect to 1099. So your independent contractor sales team, they're being paid on a commission basis and you are a provider that's subject to ECRA, we think that's probably pretty risky. And was risky under any kickback. Also true. I mean, we've certainly seen a change. I mean, 1099s historically, just to take a little aside, um, 1099 sales uh, force arrangements were, are, are frankly, have always been very common um, in our space. You know, when you're talking about providers that are smaller that can't, you know, sort of can't can't have a stable of employed um, sales sales members. Um, but we've seen an evolution over the last couple of years where the government really did begin to get sensitive and, and concerned about 1099 independent contractor sales folks being paid on a commission basis. But what we hadn't seen prior to ECRA was, um, was enforcement that was solely based on that when everything else looked clean. We, just had, we had seen it, uh, enforcement when it was part of other bad fact patterns. Uh, but not in and of itself. But certainly um, with ECRA, that's pretty clear, right? I mean, that gives us some guidance that the government's really concerned about it uh, because they didn't just adopt the anti-kickback safe harbors that would allow commission basis um, compensation for employed folks. So takeaways, just to kind of recap, because we we, I, I kind of went down a, down a side street with that, but the takeaways are if you've got 1099 independent contractor salespeople, um, they really shouldn't be commissioned anymore in light of ECRA. If you've got employed sales folks that are on a commission basis, there's still risk in that because, as Emily said, you know, it does not, just because they're employed, that is, that is not enough to meet the exceptions of ECRA, so it's problematic. However, um, you know, at least at this point, there's an argument to be made that the anti-kickback statute safe harbor, which allows you to pay commission to your bona fide employees, um, maybe there's an argument there that that's been, you know, standard for so long that it's reasonable that you relied on it, even though it doesn't expressly permit you to do that under ACRA. Um, so there is a little bit of that. I think the, 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 the practical analysis is um, how comfortable, as you said, as Emily said, is, is making that argument. Um, and, and right now, I think, you know, if, if a provider is in a position where they're not ready to move their employed sales force off of commission, I think what is important to have are these discussions that Emily was talking about. How are we going to change this once we get clarity? What is, what is it reasonable for us to rely on at this point? And that may not be enough for the government, 
but I think that you will be in a much better position as a provider if you can say to the government, listen, we were aware of this, we were waiting for the clarifying regs, but we've been thinking about what we're gonna do, we're educating ourselves, here's the, the, here's the structure that we intend to move to. Um, so it's really important for everybody to be doing something right now about ECRA, even if it's planning, even if it's not rolling out that new compensation structure. And to Liz's point, I deal with a lot of government uh, investigations. So even if it is just preliminary planning at this point, always document those mm -hmm. conversations yeah. and meaningful steps you've taken towards compliance. And if it's compliance training, have mm -hmm. sign-in sheets, um, because the government will ask for that if they do some um, investigating. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, what about violations? How are violations to be reported? Is there an anonymous tip line? Um, so violations would typically come up, like we said, in the course of an, invest an existing investigation or through a key TAM proceeding. Typically in a key TAM, a, a relator is going to engage an attorney who will file a complaint with the government that would um, initiate some sort of investigation. That's typically how it would be done. Right, but I do think there are anonymous tip lines um, through the Department of Justice and yeah. the OIG. So they exist, but those wouldn't be what we would most commonly see. Um, but it's certainly possible that something could come that in that way and that uh, you know the government could open an investigation through that. Okay, I think we have time for maybe one more question. Um, let me see. Uh, how are other labs handling their marketing representatives reimbursement? Sure, um, this is Liz again. I think I think that's a good question. Um, I think probably the thing that we haven't touched on yet as far as how to um, deal with reimbursement of sales reps is uh, this idea of what could a bonus include. And I think one of the things that we've been hearing that may be an approach um, that other labs are taking and, and may actually be something that works in the future if ECRA stands as it is, and there really is no change with respect to how you can con compensate sales reps, is, it, is a bonus that's based on um, sort of the performance of the entity Completely independent of um, completely independent of the performance of that individual. So, almost as though you know, if every sales rep gets the same bonus based on the fact that the company as a whole is doing really well, but not based on what that sales rep does individually, um, you know, I could see that as being where where folks go moving forward. So that's something that's been talked about a fair amount with other labs. Um, and other types of providers. And I think, you know, we've, we've heard it from our lab clients, but I think when you're thinking about other types of providers in the space that are subject to ACRA, that might be an option for your sales team. Right, yep. No, I think, I think that's right. Um, and I think um, when you are talking about your compensation for your sales, um, your sales reps, I keep going back to this concept, but evaluating where you fall on that line has been something that's been critical to our, critical to discussions with our clients. And what I mean by that is, you know, where are you in the space that's being regulated? Are you anatomic versus are you substance abuse? And I, 
I keep harping on, you know, if Liz and I were to draft these agreements, our, our advice would always be, let's do a flat fee approach. Let's never pay a 1099 based on a percentage basis. Um, but practically speaking, it always comes up. Where do we fall on that mm -hmm. line? Where, where are we? What types of services are we providing? Okay, great. Well, do you have any final bits of advice for us or, or anything that you wanted to leave our, our uh, attendees with? So this is Emily. I, I mean, my advice is just to keep monitoring ECRA because it seems to be a, a concept that is on the verge of guidance or evolution or amendment, whatever the government seeks to do. But I think now more than ever, it is critical to be mindful of that and to be um, following the, the legislative updates so that you know exactly how to structure or restructure your entity to comply with the, the regs and any guidance that's issued. And that may be an ongoing evaluation, right? It might be something you have to sit down and look at annually um, and say, okay, this worked for us in 2018. It doesn't work in 2019. What does 2020 look like based on any guidance that we've received? So unfortunately, that may create some frustration with sales and marketing reps because you may go back and forth a little bit on how we're structuring those agreements. But I think the, the sell to the sales reps is we are doing this to make sure that we and you are complying with ECRA so that neither of us has any liability under under any of the laws. Yeah, and just a reminder, ECRA is a criminal. Right. <laughs> it's a criminal statute. So uh, I think Emily's right about that. I guess my takeaway would be very similar, which is um, this is a space that is, it has the attention of the country. It's got the attention of our lawmakers. Um, and so in light of that, just to kind of reinforce what Emily said, um, it's really important to be to be monitoring this. If you're in this space, this isn't the type of thing that I would recommend putting away or putting on a shelf and not thinking about for a while and ignoring. I think it is something that everybody has to be proactive about. So really the first step is, okay, learning about ECRA, um, at least the general framework, and then thinking about how does it apply to you and, um, and keeping up with keeping up with what, what is generated by the government, whether there is rulemaking, whether there are clarifying regulations and going on from there. So, Great, great, thank you. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. All right, thank, thank you for you having so us. Yeah, thank you. So attendees, please use the contact information um, that was um, at the beginning of uh, the, the uh, slide presentation. Uh, remember that you can download the slide presentation um, on the side panel. Uh, and uh, please use that for any questions. If you think of them um, later, you can also send us questions and we'll forward them on. Remember, your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it separately. Uh, it'll be sent to you automatically. You can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778 and thank you for joining us.